and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today Julia Kelly is on the podcast to discuss her new historical novel, The Last Dance with the Debutante, a masterful, glittering novel that whisks you to mid-century Britain as it follows three of the last debutantes to be presented to Queen Elizabeth II. I have to share this quote from best-selling author Madeline Martin. I really liked how she captured this. She said, Julia Kelly elegantly brings to life the last official presentation of debutantes at court with her exquisitely researched and beautifully written detail in The Last Dance of the Debutante. This story was so decadent, I wanted to don silk and crinoline and read it with a glass of champagne, and I agree. Julia Kelly is the international best-selling author of historical women's fiction books about the extraordinary stories of the past. Her books have been translated into 13 languages. She's also written historical romance. In addition to writing, she's been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and for one summer, a tea waitress. Julia called Los Angeles, Iowa, and New York City home before settling in London. Julia Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and and I think we'll uh, have a good time talking about debutantes. Yes, um, this book was such a delight to kind of curl up with. I think anyone who is an Anglophile will really enjoy it. It got me thinking about The Crown, and even though it's... Mm -hmm. um, you know, a few decades later, it really had some Downton Abbey <laughs> feel to it, too, because so much hadn't seemed to change. So can you tell listeners just a bit a bit, a bit more about the characters um, at the heart of this novel and kind of the time period that you are capturing here? Sure. So the book uh, follows a young woman named Lily who has just been removed from her last year of school by her mother and her grandmother to become a debutante. And it's not just the being presented to the queen uh, that she's destined to do. She's also destined to do the whole London season. So being presented at court, and this was the last year that girls were presented at court in 1958. um, So being presented at court really just kicked off a whole social season that included a lot of dances, cocktail parties, various social gatherings where young women traditionally, historically, were supposed to be presented to society as being eligible for marriage. Um, so think your Downton Abbey's, your, your Bridgerton, uh, anything in that sort of uh, Georgian, Victorian, Edwardian era where you have a, a mama presenting her, her daughter to um, society and coming out for her first season. Well, this is the same event uh, and series of events um, that uh, those girls would have gone through with a bit more of a modern flair. This is the last official um, debutante presentation uh, that happens at the palace. Uh, this is sort of the beginning of the end of the debutantes. And I think everybody knows it, but there's various degrees of people who um, believe that the, the tradition will continue on and other people who believe that modernity is really coming for high society and for these women. Um, of course, in 1958, we would have, we know now uh, that the swinging 60s are upon us. You know, the, sex, the sexual revolution is coming up. A lot of change is about to come about in Britain and, and a lot of the West. 
Um, but this is still the last days of that sort of high society era. So we follow Lily, and um, she meets a lot of different people throughout uh, this period of time. She is uh, kind of at a bit of a crossroads in her life, trying to figure out what she wants her life to look like, whether she's going to be pulled the more traditional path of her mother and her grandmother, who were debutantes in and of their own right, or whether she's going to go and do something completely different that's uncharted. Um, and so she has a couple of people in her life who represent those things. One is a woman named uh, Liana, who's also a debutante, sort of the top debutante of the year. Um, and she's very much more in that traditional mold. And then there's a young woman named Catherine who introduces her to some other debutantes who maybe don't fit the mold quite as neatly as some others. And so you see that kind of tension between um, these different groups. And then, and then, of course, because it's one of my books, there's a big family secret at the middle of it, and it's going to change Lily's world. And uh, you follow along with her as she um, comes to realize some things about herself and, and what she's been told about herself over the years. Oh, it's it's such a um, wonderful read. I love the social dynamics. Um, it is true. It's it's fun as a reader to be delving into this time period, kind of knowing it is um, that point before so much change um, is upon uh, the characters and and their world. I'm curious, what drew you to um, this particular uh, story? And I know you're living in London now, and I'm just kind of curious what originally got you so interested in writing about England. Well, I, I am living in London. Um, I have a bit of the, the London allergies that everybody's having this summer, unfortunately, so my apologies if my uh, if my, my voice goes in and out a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by British history, and in particular, the history of women in Britain, because um, a lot of it is it has come to the forefront in recent years, but was ignored for a very long time. So I've written about women in World War II predominantly. This is a bit of a departure for me looking at high society in the late 1950s. But I think what, what drew me to it so much was the idea that this is a group of people on a pivot point where their world is going to change dramatically. And I'm always looking for those moments of change in history that are going to force your, quest, your characters to ask some unquestion, uncomfortable questions about themselves and perhaps the world they live in as well. Um, I also was really fortunate. My mother was um, is a great reader, and she and I were, were sitting at a cafe having a cup of coffee um, before meeting up with a couple of my friends for tea with their mothers. And she mentioned that she had read this fantastic book called The Last curtsy by Fiona McCarthy, who was a great, um, one of Britain's most eminent biographers. Um, she wrote uh, incredible, incredible works, really well respected. And she herself was one of the last debutantes. So the last curtsy actually goes through a very intimate, very detailed history of that last season from, you know, examples of the invitations that they received, what exactly happened at court when you were presented, all the way through to this, this sort of roving mass of parties that these people all went to, and then what happened to the debutantes afterwards. And she had such a, a, a light but... Um, uh, but at the same time, serious. She took this subject very seriously because, um, you know, this is something that was important to these women and it was important to her when she was um, a debutante. Um, but she took this subject and she wrote about it so um, 
wonderfully and so intimately that it was a bit of a of a historical novelist's dream having a book that that provided <laughs> so much of the context. Um, and so I really dove into the world of the debutantes and was actually fortunate enough to speak to a couple of women who, uh, three women actually, one of whom actually was presented in 1958. Um, and uh, she has, uh, it turns out through, I found out a year and a half later, has a connection, a loose connection to a family friend of ours. Um, I, so I had no idea. I found her through another route. Um, but then my neighbor's mother had been a debutante in 1964 when the parties and the London season was still going on, but the presentations had stopped. And so she and her friend who went through the season had a slightly different perspective, but they were able to give me such wonderful detail about what, um, you know, what the parties were like, the different things that they, they thought about, um, you know, how their experiences went. It was really a, a sort of a dream research uh, book for me. Um, and then getting to actually translate that into a novel um, that's fictionalized was therefore even more fun because I had so much rich material to work with. Oh, it sounds like so fun to get to dive into all of that. And I love all of the detail in the book. Is there anything they shared with you that really stands out as maybe something that surprised you or that has really stuck with you? One of the things that was particularly interesting to me is one woman said um, basically that if she had, if it had been her choice, she would have gone to university. She had a university spot, but her family said, no, you're going to do the season instead. And you're going to have the coming out ball and the coming out party and all. They, they did it in a very big way because um, you could ha kind of have levels of extravagance to your to your debutante season. Um, it was a very expensive undertaking, as you can probably imagine. Um, and she said that, you know, she thought that some girls really, really came into their own and really shone in that environment with a lot of attention on them and a lot of uh, opportunities to be social and meet different people. But for people like her, it was less of an enjoyable experience. She met a couple of people who remained good friends of hers throughout her life, but she didn't have the sort of fairy tale Cinderella um, experience that I think some of us imagine that being able to, uh, you know, get dressed up and go to parties and have that be your job um, for six to nine months would be. And one of the things that she talked about was how unrelentingly tiring it was. <laughs> um, and it sounds tiring. You know, one of the things that I wanted to put into this book was how incredibly um, monotonous it could become. You would be going to parties with the same group of people. You kind of wouldn't know whether you were coming or going, who you were going to see. Sometimes it would be two to three parties in an, in an evening, which again, sounds very glamorous and, and fun, but when you do that over the course of months, it must have been absolutely exhausting. So I imagine it really depended on your personality, how you responded to being in that environment. Yes, to an introvert, that does sound exhausting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm looking too, I, it, the book has the most beautiful cover. And uh, one of the things I loved reading about was sort of the fashion in the book as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of curious what kind of research you did for that and just how you were able to kind of bring some of those details to life. Well, I... I... I'm completely uh, a fashion history nerd. Uh, I'm I'm not as deep in my knowledge as some people are, but I do love it. And I think this era in particular is an era I love, uh, the clothes. Um, and of course, you know, uh, 
if people are interested in fashion, people like Hartnell would have been designing really at the height of, you know, designing for Queen Elizabeth um, during this period of time. Uh, and so it, it was really fun for me to get to go in and look at the dresses, look at um, how people would have uh, sort of presented themselves at these different events, what you would have worn. My only regret is that I wrote this book predominantly during uh, the pandemic. In fact, all of the first draft and all of the edits took place during various lockdowns <laughs> here oh. in the UK. It sort of coincided with them. And it meant that unfortunately I wasn't able to go to a place like the VNA um, and look at what the costume department had to offer. So a lot of online resources went into uh, the research for the clothing and the hair and different things like that. Um, but I, I do, a part of me really does wish that I could have gotten a little bit more up close and personal with some of the frocks. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> it just wasn't meant to be. So maybe an ancillary, um, an ancillary uh, project at some point would be uh, doing a, a bit of that side of the research just for fun, just for me. Yes, it's interesting. I feel like so many of the authors I've been speaking with lately, um, the books that have just come out are the ones they were writing during the pandemic. And it is amazing, especially with historical novels, how people were able to still sort of pivot and um, find sources. And um, did it make it more difficult trying to track down people to interview? Or I guess maybe sometimes you just do that over the phone anyway. So I was able to interview over the phone, which was really helpful. Um, It was the funny type of book because, so I've written um, quite a bit about World War II, as I mentioned, and it's one of those subjects where, unfortunately, a lot of the people who would have been the age that I'm writing about, so sort of 20s to 40s, is that's kind of predominantly where my my heroes and heroines fall in those books. A lot of them are either um, no longer with us or or quite old, and so it is a little bit trickier sometimes to track down people with specific experiences, such as I wrote about uh, a gunner girl for The Light Over London. Um, With this book, I did actually have people who went through the experience of being a debutante, and so it really was... It really was an interesting word of mouth. Um, I live in London, and again, during the pandemic, uh, a lot of what you could do was talk to your neighbors six feet apart. Um, and so yeah. we sort of everybody on my road got to know each other a little bit. Um, and my neighbor two doors down, I just mentioned uh, while we were outside chatting one day, I just mentioned that this was the subject of my next book. And she said, oh, my mother was a debutante. And then it kind of got around the neighborhood that so-and-so, you know, so-and-so's mother was a debutante or so-and-so's aunt was a debutante. And this person actually, you know, uh, knew somebody who did the flowers for some of the debutante balls in, in 58. And so it was just this funny little environment of people who were either closely or loosely connected to the whole London season. Um, but at the same time, the, the London season was a closed environment. And I always make sure to mention that this is a very privileged group of people, even though within the book, you do see some class stratification, even within that group who would have been able to be presented, because you could only be presented at court if you were presented by a woman who had herself been presented. So normally we're talking about mothers presenting daughters, aunts presenting nieces, grandmothers presenting granddaughters, things like that. Um, And so it is this very small, very closed world, but at the same time, different people touched this world in such a way that it meant that there was this kind of whisper network of of debutante associates uh, in my neighborhood. It was very strange, but kind kind of fun at the same time. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. And I'm curious too, since you're 
an American author um, in London writing about um, London. Do you find that it's sort of Americans who are like me obsessed with all things British who tend to be (laughs) more drawn to your novels or is it people in England too, who are sort of wanting to delve into the past um, of their own country? Well, it's funny you ask that, and this is going to get a little bit into the weeds of, of um, publishing business, but I promise there's a, there's a point to it. Um, I love the weeds of publishing business. <laughs> I do too, to be honest. Um, so I'm predominantly published, uh, first published in the U.S. Um, by, for this book by a publisher named uh, Gallery Books, which is part of Simon & Schuster, and also Simon & Schuster Canada, which is the sister um, to Gallery Books. And then they go out and they go to market and say, you know, in other rights territories, so for instance, the the British Commonwealth um, essentially has uh, a rights territory, um, Hungary, you know, Serbia, uh, China, all sorts of different places. You know, who wants to buy this book and, and have the rights to publish it in your territory? And so different books have been published in different places. And this one was actually picked up by a publisher here in the UK as well. So I had the experience of this coming out in the US and Canada, where the bulk of my um, audience is, because that's where my publishing, um, primary publishing is. And I've also had people here uh, in, in London and in the UK um, read the book as well through their own published um, version. And it's been really, really interesting. Um, I have absolutely had people on both sides reach out and say, you know, this is a whole world I didn't know about, or, you know, it's so interesting that this world feels so old fashioned and then you'll be reading along and suddenly you're talking about a Little Richard record playing um, or somebody watching something on a television. And it, and it's really true. There are lots of old fashioned trappings that feel very apart from where we are now. Um, and then every once in a while you have that moment of remembering, oh, this is not actually that long ago. So that's been really the biggest response, I think, from people here in the UK. Um, I, I, have the funny, I have the funny privilege of being um, both American and British. My mother's British, and so I'm, I'm a British citizen through her, and of course I live over here now. And so I get a little bit of the best of both worlds. I get to have this sort of very American curiosity, but then I get to experience a lot of stuff um, firsthand uh, when it comes to, to life over here. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, you know, I mentioned the cover briefly, and I'm just curious um, because it is such a stunning cover, kind of what the process was for that. And if it took a long time to get to that particular version. And for people who haven't seen it, it's this beautiful image of a woman who you're assuming is at a glamorous party in a beautiful <laughs> kind of period dress, kind of draped on a on a couch. And it's just so glamorous looking and just really pulls you in. I'm just curious if it took a while to get to that cover and if you had any input. Well, normally I have no real say in um, what my covers look like other than to say, you know, I love it. It looks great. Or, you know, could we potentially tweak this? And that's a good thing because I'm really not a design first person at all. I'm, I'm very much, uh, I'm very much hands off in the process as I should be. Um, but <laughs> I, I have to say, I have a real soft spot for this cover. I think it's beautiful. It's, you know, it's, I think it evokes a sense of the time and a sense of sort of, um, uh, this, this, this book in general, I hope people will, will think 
Um, but it was really interesting. There's a little bit of a side story with that, which is an Instagrammer, and I've just pulled it up actually um, on my website to make sure I get the details right and give the, the correct credit. Uh, but an Instagrammer called Novels with Narcy um, posted a side-by-side -side image of The Last Dance of the Debutante and a book called Payne's Party's Work, Sylvia Plath in New York, Summer 1953 by Elizabeth Winder. And it's the same image, but slightly different, which made me realize that this is an image from a photo shoot. Um, my version looks... Uh, painted and this the other book is much more um, much more photographic and it turns out that this was an image taken in 1950 uh, I'm sorry in the 1950s um, of a woman named uh, Jean Patchett who was one of the first great American models um, who was all over Vogue and if you look up her name you'll see she had some incredibly iconic covers um, for Vogue. So there's a whole story behind the photograph that I didn't know when when the book came out. Unfortunately, this person did point it out to me. So it's, I think it's a, I think it's a lovely cover. I love the dress. I love the sofa. Um, <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of want all of it in my life. I know. I want to wear the dress. Well, I'm kind of curious. You, you know, I'm sure by now you probably have like a finely tuned process for your historical books. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And like, are you a plotter or a pantser? Do you have a certain writing routine? I would say I have a process, but um, sometimes uh, the best of intentions means uh, that it doesn't always go quite to plan. Um, <laughs> so I typically will start with an idea. So for this book, it was, I knew I wanted to write about the last season and I wanted to, or the last presentations. And I wanted to write about a debutante who was, again, you know, at somewhat of a crossroads, kind of representing the, the crossroads that this group of people in society would be uh, would retroactively realize that they were um, at and in terms of modernization and tradition. And um, so I started by reading The Last Curtsy by Fiona McCarthy and uh, doing a bit of research to sort of understand the world. And as I did that, I typically will start to kind of think about, well, who would be the person, the woman at the center of this story? And then I build out the story from there. So I do write out um, typically a three to seven page synopsis, which tells me the beginning, the middle and the end. Um, it's always very tempting to skip over the middle section and just kind of wave my hands and say things will happen. Uh, but I make myself write it out because it's a good guideline for myself. So I don't write off of a really strict outline. Um, but I know at least where I'm meant to be going. And then I usually will start doing a bit more deep work around, you know, why, why are people motivated in this book to, you know, do different things? What's, what, what is the end goal for them? And that will inform why people make certain decisions at different times. Um, and then I'll start to think about, you know, what are the major scenes if there are sort of big emotional turning points, realizations, secrets revealed, how do I build out the plot from there? Um, and usually by that point, I have a sort of loose idea um, in a bit more detail of where I'm going, but I always like to give myself a little bit of room to um, veer off the, the planned path um, because I find that sometimes characters don't behave in the way that you, th you think initially when you start writing the book. Or what's usually more telling for me is if I start writing and I find that I'm really, the words aren't flowing, I'm a little bit stuck, it's, it's really hard work to get things down on the page, 
that's usually a sign that something's not working and almost always it is the characters who are somehow off. So I need to go back and make some tweaks and usually that kind of unlocks um, a lot of the, the creative momentum. Um, so yeah, I, I typically will write a draft and then I do a lot of uh, self-editing uh, before I show it to an editor and then we start going through the more sort of standard editorial process with the publisher. I love hearing that behind the scenes. That's so interesting. Well, um, just our last couple questions. I would love to hear what you are working on next, or even if you can share sort of the general time period. And then um, along with that, I would love to hear if there are any particular books you've been reading lately that you would want to recommend to listeners. Sure. So I can definitely talk about what I've been working on. Um, so I have a book called The Lost English Girl that is coming out uh, in March 2023. Um, it's another historical fiction and it's set uh, during World War II. Um, it's about, uh, it's, it's actually inspired by some true family stories, although again, I deviate dramatically from uh, the truth and go into fiction because I'm a novelist and that's my prerogative. Uh, so um, it's about a young woman, a young Catholic woman um, and a young Jewish man in Liverpool in the mid 1930s who, uh, who, who get pregnant and their families uh, uh, they realize that they're going to be uh, that they're going to need to get married to legitimize this child and to uh, make sure that you know this child is born into um, into a family. And so they're they're on their wedding day. Something happens, and he leaves, and it leaves her behind, kind of with her family, um, and she has to figure out how to make a life from there, and he has to figure out how to make a life. Um, based around the decision that he made. Um, and then everything gets thrown into complication when uh, war breaks out. And um, she has to make the very difficult decision to send her daughter away to be evacuated uh, in the English countryside. People thought that this would keep children safe from potential air raids. Um, and it's only that evacuation that brings these two people back together um, and forces them to confront some of the things that happened in the past between the two of them um, and also figure out uh, how to sort of live with this connection that they have between the two of them, which is their daughter. Um, I'm being very, very skittish around spoilers <laughs> because <laughs> it can get quite spoilery. Um, but I think, um, I hope it's a book that people will... Um, will really, um, really respond to, you know, the, the question of what do you do when, um, you know, your dreams don't match up with the direction your life is going in both of their cases is something that I wanted to explore, but also the just incredibly, incredibly difficult decision that a lot of parents made to put their children on trains and send them away to, to live with strangers um, because they thought it was the safest thing to do. And in fact, that's something that my own grandparents did uh, during the war as well. So it's, uh, oh, wow. it's a bit of a bit of kind of looking at that um, very common national experience uh, here in Britain for a group of people, for a generation of people, but a really difficult one as well. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I want to look forward to reading that one. And then, so that's what you're working on lately. Has there been anything that you've been reading lately that you're excited about? 
Yes. So depending on where, when this comes out, um, my friend who you mentioned at the top of uh, the top of the podcast, who graciously um, gave a, a lovely quote about the last dance of the debutante, uh, Madeline Martin has a new book uh, coming out called The Librarian Spy, and I was lucky enough to read it earlier this year. It's fantastic. She is a wonderful writer. It's a really interesting, really compelling story. Um, and I think people, especially people who love that sort of women-driven World War II fiction are going to absolutely love this book. But just in general, it is it is so well done and um, such an absolutely uh, compelling read. Um, and, then, and then very much on the other side of things, because I write so much historical fiction, I kind of try to pepper my reading with a few different things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend an old classic, um, at least a, a classic of sort of uh, more of the women's fiction side of the genre. Um, and that is Garden Spells by Sarah Addison Allen. I have been going through a rereading um, uh, spell with her and uh, reread, reread both her Garden Spells and First Frost and really enjoyed um, really enjoyed that experience. So this is this is me speaking to um, reader a reader and librarian saying you know reread books <laughs> and enjoy yes. books that you've read before, <laughs> which sounds very silly, but I think sometimes, especially with how many wonderful new books there are out there, it's uh, it's a good reminder that sometimes visiting some old favorites is uh, is a good idea. Oh, I agree. And sometimes you can feel guilty when you see your stack of books that you want to read, yes. but it's, it's so lovely to, to reread as well. Well, Julia, I enjoyed The Last Dance of the Debutante so much. Uh, it was such a wonderful book to kind of escape to London in the 1950s. And um, I really hope that listeners go pick it up or um, get it from their local library. And I'm really looking forward to reading um, your next book. Thank you so much. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.